I was told to pretty much say anything I needed to say in order to gain custody for an animal. People would call us and say that they want to surrender their animals in, for the purposes of rehoming. And in that situation, you would say to them, absolutely, I'll come pick up the animal. We'll do our very best to rehome this animal. Knowing full well the animal was not going to be rehomed, the animal was going to be killed. And I was told to lie by my direct supervisors initially and then by Ingrid. Today, we're speaking with Heather Harper Troge, a former PETA field worker who is going to provide a first hand look inside PETA's kill room. Now, the fact that PETA has a kill room where it routinely injects thousands of animals a year with fatal doses of poison, including perfectly healthy puppies and kittens, without ever making them available for adoption, may still come as a surprise to some. Though this killing has been going on now for well over two decades, there are still many people unaware of PETA's killing agenda and therefore continue to support PETA's poisoning of thousands of animals a year through their financial contributions to that organization. Right. Even more troubling, there are still self-proclaimed animal rights activists and organizations which know what is really going on at PETA, but choose to look the other way or even defend PETA publicly, either because as activists, their identity is wrapped up in being a PETA supporter, or because they personally benefit, either financially or professionally, from supporting or working collaboratively with that organization. This includes groups such as Direct Action Everywhere, whose founder has publicly lauded Ingrid Newkirk, the architect of PETA's killing, and Farm Animal Rights Movement, which highlights PETA at its annual Animal Rights Conference and has even inducted Newkirk into its Animal Rights Hall of Fame. As has been true for all of our efforts to bring greater awareness to this deeply troubling issue and the ongoing threat to animals posed by PETA through our books, our activism, and our social media outreach over these many years, we hope that this interview will serve to further increase the number of people who will stand up for the animals rather than continue to grant license to PETA to harm them in the most egregious way it is possible to do so by depriving them of their right to live. For though PETA's image is that of an animal rights organization, one that many people believe to be the most outspoken and even radical voice of the movement to protect animals and expand their rights. In practice and behind closed doors, as our upcoming interview with Heather reveals, PETA is itself the functional equivalent of a slaughterhouse. However, before we begin our discussion with Heather, we want to provide a little background context about what Heather will be discussing, and we want to direct our listeners to the documentation and evidence we have that supports Heather's claims. We know what we know about PETA from a variety of sources and evidence. This includes records acquired through public records requests, reports by the Virginia Department of Agriculture after its inspectors visited PETA facilities, criminal and civil cases, accounts of other PETA employees, as well as statements made by PETA founder Ingrid Newkirk herself. And what this evidence reveals is that PETA employees both take in and seek out, often through deception, theft, and outright lies, thousands of animals every year the vast majority of whom they immediately put to death with a fatal dose of poison. Though for reasons which Heather will explain, the number of animals reported to the Commonwealth of Virginia by PETA may actually be lower than the true number of animals they kill annually, of this much we are certain. In the last 13 years, PETA has killed at least 32,744 companion animals. While PETA claims the animals it takes in and kills are unadoptable, the facts do not support this claim. Employees have described 8-week-old, 10-week-old, and 12-week-old healthy kittens and puppies routinely and immediately put to death with no effort made to find them homes. PETA has been caught stealing healthy animals and putting them to death. 
Rescue groups, individuals, and veterinarians have come forward stating that the animals they gave PETA were healthy, and PETA insiders have admitted as much. One former intern reporting that he quit in disgust after witnessing healthy puppies and kittens in the kill room. Ingrid Newkirk herself has also admitted that they kill healthy animals. She was asked that very question during a television interview. Does PETA kill healthy animals? And she responded, absolutely. Likewise, PETA staff have described under oath that animals they have killed were healthy, adorable, and perfect. But it's the annual numbers that show the scope of the killing. And once again, these numbers, as Heather suggests, are the minimum number. Thousands every year, as high as 99% of all animals PETA impounds, seeks out, and as history demonstrates, sometimes steals. It's also important to note that though PETA has historically wrapped the killing that they do in the language of animal sheltering, PETA is under no government mandate to take in animals. But even more to the point, it does not attempt to find homes for the animals it does take in, choosing instead to execute them, often immediately, most of the time within 24 hours of acquiring them. Tragically, but not surprisingly, its rate of killing is 530% higher for dogs and 158% higher for cats than the average of all pounds and shelters operating in Virginia. Compare the best performing open admission shelters which take in more dogs and cats than PETA on a fraction of PETA's budget and yet place 98% to 99% of all animals while that many are killed by PETA or displace others who are killed at the pounds PETA sometimes delivers them to and the conclusion is inescapable. That's important because talking about that organization as if its mission is to protect and assist animals obscures what the facts reveal to be a black and white issue. When it comes to dogs and cats, PETA's mission is not animal protection, but to kill as many of them as possible and to encourage others to do the same. For not only do they fight legislation to save dogs and cats, not only do they publicly advocate that all pit bulls should be killed in all shelters, not only do they round up and kill community cats, but they use their name, donations, and reputation to influence others to kill animals too. Recently, for example, they lobbied the mayor of Seaside Heights, New Jersey, to evict cats living on the beach, arguing that they would be better off with a lethal injection. They also told Camden County, New Jersey officials that cats smell, are a nuisance, make too much noise, are a public health and rabies threat, transmit disease and parasites, including roundworms, hookworms, and even plague, not the words of an organization filled with cat lovers working to save their lives. Instead, they urged Camden County to round up and kill the cats. Over the years, PETA has also come to the defense of shelters which starve animals and neglect animals, even one in which puppies were flushed down a trench drain, never to be seen again. Thus was the culture of killing which, unknown to her, would greet Heather Harper Troge when she went to work at PETA many years ago as a young, idealistic animal rights activist, a culture of killing to which she eventually succumbed and, much to her later regret, participated in as well. And while over the years we have spoken with many former PETA employees who have contacted us to share the very grisly, disturbing, and heartbreaking actions against animals they have witnessed while working at PETA's Norfolk, Virginia headquarters, Heather is unique in that she is the first employee to go public with those stories. Because PETA is infamous for threatening people and threatening journalists who speak out against their killing with legal action and for taking other unethical retaliatory actions against their critics. Heather is the only one who has summoned the courage to speak out publicly. Yes, and though it took her 10 years to come forward, when she did, she did so in a big way, 
with a powerful article about a dog named Black Boy that she rescued as a pedophile worker, but then PETA ordered her to kill. I just want to read the first paragraph before we turn it over to Heather. There was a time when I was a true believer in a very good little soldier. I did what I was told to do when I was told to do it. I didn't question orders, and if I did, it was never to the face of the one giving them. Then, one stormy and snowy evening, I stopped by an abandoned house to check on a dog I'd been feeding and caring for. I pulled up in front of the home and saw him huddled on the open porch, undercover as much as his short chain would allow, his thick fur encrusted in ice. In that moment, I made the decision to unchain him and usher him into my van. And unlike past days, when he'd been slightly timid and unwilling to trust me completely, he followed me. I rubbed him with towels to dry his soaked fur, wrapped him in blankets to warm him, fed him dog treats, stroked his head. What followed is one of the great regrets of my life, one I can barely bring myself to write about. Back in a warehouse later that night, I held his big head in my lap and whispered soothing mantras in his ear while a colleague of mine injected him with the chemical that would take his life, and he quietly slipped away. I don't regret taking him. He would probably have frozen to death if I'd left him there. I regret being a good soldier. I regret following orders. I regret not listening to my heart. I regret not fighting for Black Boy. That was his name. This dog had been kept on a chain for his entire life in the yard of an abandoned house, never given affection, but barely enough to sustain him. He'd been bought by the son of the woman who lived next door to the abandoned house for protection. She was terrified of him. She threw his food at him because she wouldn't go near him. At first glance, he was intimidating, a big black German shepherd mix who'd only known life on a chain and who was understandably protective of his space. But something about him had captured me. I spent time with him, a lot of time. And this is how he came to trust me enough to let me whisk him away on the night that ended up with him dead and me broken. Devastating. As we turn to our guest, I want to apologize for the poor quality of the audio as the interview was conducted and recorded by telephone. Heather, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. Okay, so let's just go ahead and, and jump right in. Uh, to begin with, just why don't you tell us uh, what your job was at PETA, when you worked there, and more importantly, why you went to work for them. Uh, so I was a field worker in the Community Animal Project Division of PETA, um, which meant that I took calls from the community, you know, when people either wanted to surrender their animals for the purposes of rehoming um, or needed services that we could provide, like helping with staying and neutering or dog houses or things like that. Um, I also did a lot of field work, which means that I went out into local communities and um, met with people, um, investigated charges of neglect, cruelty, um, and just kind of worked in the community to, to try to, well, my objective a lot was to try and educate people. It turned into a lot more than that as I started to work for PETA Moore. Uh, so I came into PETA having worked in a shelter in Montana where euthanasia was a reality, but the ultimate aim, of course, was to save and rehome animals. Um, and, of course, when I got hired by PETA, it was kind of like, for a young activist, it's kind of like getting recruited by the Yankees, right? Mm -hmm. So I was a little bit starstruck, a little bit overwhelmed. Um, and it, I knew right off the bat that, 
that my objectives were initially different from what I was seeing just on, on my initial write about with my supervisor, we went and picked up some cats and she said we we're going to bring them back to headquarters to put them down. And I was very taken aback by that because I assumed we would bring them to a shelter to have them rehomed. And, and I asked her about that and she actually relented a little and we decided which ones we were going to bring to, the, to a shelter to have them rehomed. Um, so that's kind of how it all started. Now you, you mentioned, Heather, that people called because they wanted to uh, have their uh, animals rehomed, and we'll mm -hmm. get into a little bit later in our discussion how that, in fact, does not happen most of the time at PETA. Correct, yeah. And as we explained in the in introduction, PETA does kill a lot of animals. Uh, mm -hmm. They defend the killing that happens in pounds, and they fight shelter reform efforts to reduce killing. But uh, PETA is not a monolith. It's made up of people who do this, and a lot of people like you went to work there to help animals and ended mm -hmm. up harming them. And that, right. that's the theme of your really seminal essay, uh, Rescued by Black Boy, How a Neglected Dog Set Me Back on My Path Away from PETA, which I encourage everyone to read, and we have a link to it uh, on the website. Uh, but I say seminal because while you're not the first PETA employee to come forward uh, to talk about the kinds of things that PETA does that most people aren't aware, but you're the first not to do so anonymously. And in, in the essay, you describe a dog named Black Boy as having rescued you, having put you back mm -hmm. on the path uh, to animal rights and away from PETA. And that's a, a really telling way to describe it because most people equate PETA with animal rights, and you write mm -hmm. that you broke away from PETA in order to embrace or, or, or re-embrace animal rights. So why don't you tell us who Black Boy was, what he meant to you, and how your relationship with him resulted in your break with PETA. Black Boy was um, a dog who lived in the yard of an abandoned house next to the woman who was meant to be his caretaker. Um, he lived on the end of a chain. He was a black German Shepherd mix, not very well socialized, understandably, because he was never kept as a companion. He was given to the woman by her son for protection. Um, so he was supposed to bark when there were people walking by. Um, but she was terrified of him. She never went near him. She threw his food to him. Um, he lived always by himself. He never had any companionship. Um, I went there initially just to kind of check up on him. I don't even remember how I ended up there, if it was a call that somebody had put in for neglect. It would, it's very possible because we got calls like that. But I just kind of fell in love with him. Um, and I could tell that he didn't trust people, but I kept going back to him, and I kept giving him treats, and I would pet him and just kind of give him the love that, that he never had. So one night I was out in my van in a snowstorm, and I went to check on him, and he was chained to, chained to, chained to a fence that had kind of an overhang, over it, but he was, his fur was just caked in ice and snow. And I thought, if I leave him here, he's going to freeze to death. So I ran into the yard, I swooped him up, put him back in the van. Um, I was with another field worker, so she drove. 
I was in the back of the van with him, just kind of drying him off with towels, um, getting warm, and giving him food. And we took him back to the warehouse um, where we would euthanize animals. And I held him while she injected him. And I'm sorry, it's still really emotional for me. Um, I felt like holding him while he was dying was a moment that cracked me open. And I saw how far I had strayed off the path that I should have been on. Um, he changed everything, or changed everything for me because he made me remember that animals are worth saving and that we have an obligation as rescuers to do that. And I betrayed him. I betrayed what I was supposed to be doing as a rescuer. And ultimately, he made me see that animals are individuals who deserve a second chance. And I had the obligation to give him that second chance, and I didn't do it. So more and more, I just started going back to my path, not following orders, not following what I was supposed to be doing according to PETA and not walking in lockstep anymore because I knew that what I was doing was not right. Well, no, that's interesting, Heather, because I want to ask you about the changes in your belief system that occurred while you worked at PETA, which um, mm -hmm. you know, I think that that demonstrates clearly that, that you were regaining something that you felt that you had lost. You, you write, uh, in the beginning, I, I wanted to adopt out the majority of animals I brought in, and you credit that impulse with the mentality you brought with you when you went to work at PETA, writing that you, know, you brought with you as a perspective of a shelter worker, like you said and that mm -hmm. you, you know, were duty-bound to believe that very few animals were beyond hope. But your essay then traces how it was that you went from a person who went to work at PETA to help animals to a person who, in your own words, and from what you just said, you know, had strayed far from your own belief system. And most remarkably, you write that if you had continued to walk the road that you were on, that, that you would have been left no choice but to become a complete fanatic out of necessity because it had to be done in order to survive the life that you were living. Could you help us understand the process by which you were encouraged to abandon your original belief system um, for one that is, in fact, the antithesis of the very reason you went to work at PETA in the first place? Like, how does a person who goes to work at PETA to help animals come to not only believe that the way to help animals is to kill them, but to participate in that killing as well? Like, mm -hmm. Sure. Um, I, think, I think there are a couple of different reasons. I think because... Um, at that time, I wasn't anti-euthanasia. More and more, actually, my views are changing and evolving, just, just as everybody's usually do. <laughs> um, but back then, that was the perspective that I had. Um, but as I was working in the field, 10 hours a day, sometimes six days a week, everything was very overwhelming. And when you, I think, are faced with seeing so much cruelty, so much neglect, um, people who are are not capable of being good companions for animals. It it becomes day by day easier and easier to believe. And I began to believe more and more that the only solution was killing animals. There weren't enough homes. There weren't enough quality homes. There were so many of them. And then once that philosophy kind of took hold, I just I stopped questioning things. I stopped thinking critically. Um, 
and I forgot what I was really supposed to be doing, which was rescue work. It, it's not it's not triage. I mean, triage in this in this situation, it's not only wrong; it, it's lazy, and it's backwards, and it's twisted. And you know, just kind of day by day, I strayed away from what I what I really believed in. So, so you had previously written, Heather, that uh, on, on getting hired by PETA, there was uh, a type of indoctrination that took place about the need to kill, and, and the right. best thing to do was to kill animals. Now, it sounds like that, uh, you know, given all the things that you have said you saw, that it sort of started, at least initially, it sort of made sense to you. But was that indoctrination... Did, did that continue when you started to question some of the things that PETA was doing and asking you to do? Not in the same way because, you know, in the beginning until you kind of get to that place where you're walking in lockstep, there's kind of a gentle easing into it of the people that I was working with. Um, it was a kind of almost like a, a false compassion. We know that this is what you believe, but... Um, but when I started pushing back against that, there wasn't the same kind of softness anymore. It was just more, how dare you question what we're telling you to do. You were taking in a lot of these animals and you were, were killing them. And you had said mentioned that you had worked at a shelter in Montana that was actually, um, you know, did kill animals but also did attempt to rehome them. But that wasn't actually occurring at PETA. Um, no. So, how did that influence your uh, – I mean, it, you say that you started to believe in it, but you could see that there that there's other avenues that you knew that other shelters did, PETA wasn't doing. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. uh, these animals weren't even being made available for adoption. Absolutely not. There there were – I thought hard every time I, I felt like I had really taken in an animal who was adoptable. Um, I remember walking to Ingrid's office once with a little white dog, and I wrote about her and said, you know, I just picked this dog up. She's highly adaptable. She's very social. She's small. You know, I think that this is, this is a cakewalk. And, she, and Ingrid kind of ridiculed me and said, well, why do you think she deserves a chance more than any other animal would? And she turned to a man who was in her office and said, well, what do you think? And he said, I think she's really cute. Why not give her a chance? I don't remember who he was. Um, so then she was like, okay, whatever, just do what you're going to do. Um, there was another situation where I took in a, a highly social black lab who eventually was named Kofi by his new family. And I said that I wanted to try and adopt him, and I, I got a lot of blowback. Um, but I did it on – I did it. I found a home for him actually with kind of a local celebrity and um, – they adored him. So, but every time I wanted that to happen, it was like Sisyphus. It was, you know, just kind of rolling that boulder back up the hill uh, because that wasn't, that wasn't the objective of the program. The objective of the program was to get as many animals as possible, and the vast majority of those animals were killed. Now, you, you say, Heather, that uh, in your essay uh, you write that, uh, in fact, uh, the standard operating procedure that you were given by PETA was to get people to give, give up their animals, knowing that they would mm -hmm. be killed, and yet 
those people were uh, under the impression that most of those animals uh, were going to get rehomed. Uh, and right. so, in fact, you had to not be truthful with them. I mean, you yourself called right. it lying. So what were you told to do to get animals? Who told you to do it? And can you uh, maybe give us some examples of those? Um, I was told to pretty much say anything I needed to say in order to gain custody for an animal or of an animal. So there were two ways that um, animals came to PETA. People would call us and say that they want to surrender their animals in, for the purposes of rehoming. And in that situation, you would say to them, absolutely, I'll come pick up the animal. We'll do our very best to rehome this animal. Knowing full well the animal was not going to be rehomed, the animal is going to be killed. Um, the other way that we brought in animals was by working in communities, going out into the field and essentially ingratiating ourselves to those communities. So you would go out with the objective, first off, of obtaining custody of an animal. And if that didn't work, you would say, well, let us help you. Let us give you a doghouse. Let us give you hay. Let's make sure this animal, even if she's living outside, is going to be taken care of this way. But then you would keep working with that family to try and gain custody of the animal because that was always the end objective. And you would say whatever you had to say in order to make that happen because nobody wants to surrender their animal just for the purposes of being killed. You're not going to get any animal from people by telling them that. Um, And I was told to lie by my direct supervisors initially and then by Ingrid once I began to work more directly with her. And even when my direct supervisors told me to lie, they told me that it came straight from Ingrid. And eventually, yeah, I heard that straight from her mouth. In your essay, you write, let me be clear, there was no shelter at PETA when I was there. What was referred to as the shelter was a large, empty storage closet across from our office. The only other holding facility we had was in the warehouse, where the animals were euthanized. And when I did use the room across my office as a holding area for animals, Ingrid would ask why I hadn't already euthanized them, one time nailing me to the wall because the litter of puppies I'd placed in there for a night had pooped everywhere. I was told to euthanize the puppies immediately. Obviously, from that description, it is clear no effort whatsoever was made to find those puppies at home, and that is consistent with the number of animals Peter reports to impound and kill every year, which demonstrate that on average, as many as 98% of them that PETA impounds are either killed outright or sent to pounds which kill them or displace other animals at those shelters who are then killed. A lot of people would find this shocking, but um, you don't find that shocking, I guess, from your description. That's pretty much standard operating procedure. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. 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 It is. Um, well, Heather, you, you say, you know, you describe uh, how you got some of these animals, either going to the field, knocking on doors, uh, people calling. Uh, one of the things that uh, you've also written is that you never had an owner tell you that they wanted their animal killed and that, uh, you know, despite PETA claiming that, one of, that they basically run a shelter of last resort. So in other words, right. they only provide... Uh, end-of-life euthanasia or killing, and they do that to respond to uh, public criticism about the uh, sheer number of animals they kill and the high percentage they kill. But but you've said that if anyone ever came to to you as a PETA employee, it was so rare that you you can't even remember one instance uh, of of it happening. 
So, I, I mean, does that mean PETA is lying when they say they only provide end-of-life uh, euthanasia for suffering animals? That's my experience, absolutely. I, I, I mean, just looking at the statistics of how many animals they kill, for them, for them to be killing that number of animals and claiming that all of those animals are too ill to save or are too old, um, anybody could see that those numbers are just, they're alarming for one thing, and they, they're not, it's not reasonable to believe that there are that many animals out there and that many, that many human companions without any other resources in terms of bringing the animal to a vet um, to need those kind of services from PETA. That just, to me, that just, it seems a ridiculous lie to cover up their objective and what they're actually doing, which is killing highly adoptable, healthy animals. You state in your essay that PETA is responsible for the deaths of far more animals than they are actually disclosing because you are encouraged not to enter animals into the log of animals killed and to pretend that the animals weighed more than they did. What purpose do these actions serve, and how do they allow PETA to underreport the number of animals they kill every year? The killing is done by a drug called phenobarbital, which mm-hmm. is a controlled substance. Um, and the amount of the drug that each animal needs in order to be put down is, is based on a couple of different things, but one of the main factors is weight. Um, also, excitability if an animal is really worked up. Uh, they're going to need more of the drug in order to be killed. So if you overestimate the weight of an animal or say that animal was very agitated, and write down that you gave the animal more of the the drug than you actually did, that allows you some of that leftover drug that you can you've accounted for according to the books, but you actually didn't use, which will then allow you to kill animals off the books and not have to record that you ever took that animal in or to make up a story about what happened to that animal, saying that they went to a feral cat colony or whatever, because the records that PETA keeps, are, they're very, very minimal. And so then you're essentially able to kill animals without writing it down in, in the log that you're required to keep by law. Do you have a sense of how many animals that would be, uh, that, like a percentage of animals I, you know, I were recorded officially? I don't remember well enough to say that, but I know that I saw the statistic that they take in, on average, five animals a day. And to me, based on my experience, that's ridiculously low. Five animals a day for me to bring in would have been a very slow day. So if, if those are the numbers of animals that they're claiming they're bringing in, according to the stats that they submit to Virginia, they're greatly underestimating lying about how many animals they're bringing in. That's, an, that's interesting in terms of where, where the, how, how PETA acquires that many animals, you know, uh, mm-hmm. because it, the, the statistics that they report to the Commonwealth of Virginia indicate that they take in roughly 2,000 animals a year, killing 9 out of 10 of them. And, and right. as you said, that works out to about 5 animals a day, which you say may, may actually be low. Um, mm-hmm. But that still seems like, given that they don't run a shelter in the traditional sense of, of the word, how does PETA acquire uh, so many animals to kill? Well, they're trusted, you know. I mean, if you don't know about what they do or, or don't want to admit that they're actually killing animals, it's really easy to trust an organization like PETA. I mean, so they're a, a leading... 
people calling that PETA, reaching they're out to calling, themselves? They're calling. They're they're meeting field workers when they go out into the field. You know, the field workers appear to be very genuine and compassionate, and they work in primarily primarily impoverished or low wage neighborhoods, often with um, populations that are maybe more vulnerable, at least that was my experience. So, you know, they, these people, they want to believe that they're doing the right thing, and who better to give your animal to find a new home for than people from this, you know, this amazing animal rights organization. I think it's really easy for people to believe that they're doing the right thing. And, and that certainly um, is something that employees who are lying in order to get these animals know. You know, they play on that. Heather, we know that uh, in addition to rounding up and killing animals, PETA has a shelter and cruelty investigation division, and that division mm-hmm. also works to undermine the protect, protection of shelter animals by, by writing shelters to, you know, for example, encourage them not to work with rescue groups or to kill all mm-hmm. pit bull-type dogs. Uh, they write elected officials and government uh, bureaucrats, and they even write letters to the editor of newspapers around the country that are uh, debating life and death issues for animals, uh, encouraging those communities to kill animals like community cats and pit bulls, and uh, you know even coming to the defense of shelters accused of neglect and cruelty by local animal lovers who are seeking reform. In your experience, Uh, How much awareness is there among PETA staff who aren't in those departments about what those departments that are killing animals or promoted killing are doing? In other words, if someone works in a different department, say they're in in vegan education, are those Mm -hmm. employees aware that uh, PETA rounds up animals to kill and is encouraging other uh, shelters to kill even more? My experience is that it's a little limited because I didn't really socialize or work with anybody who didn't work in my department or who wasn't in the research and investigation department, which is right next to my department. Um, And I was so busy all the time that I, I honestly wasn't really paying much attention to what was going on in the other departments. I suspect, at least when I was there, that most people did not know that we were killing the vast majority of animals that we were bringing in. And the reason I think that is because it really was kept very, very quiet, even within PETA itself. Now, I don't know whether or not that has changed. I think probably there were people who either suspected it or knew that it was happening, but it really was kept to a pretty central group of people. I had a close friend of mine who went to work at PETA, and uh, he was unacquainted with their killing agenda at the time. Mm-hmm. And um, But we both had had a lot of experience rescuing animals in conjunction with a pretty prominent and much-beloved no-kill shelter where we lived before he went to work there. Um, and mm-hmm. during his orientation at PETA, the, the new staff were shown an anti-no-kill propaganda video that equated mm-hmm. uh, no-kill shelters with animal abuse. And uh, mm-hmm. he raised his hand and explained that that video, you know, didn't represent the very wonderful, dedicated no-kill shelters with which uh, he he was familiar. He was uh, fired. He was asked not to come back. And I'm wondering if, if that's typical of how PETA leadership handles people who may question the killing or the party line at PETA against the movement to save shelter animals. Sure, absolutely, yeah. And, and I think most people there, I think it would be hard to work at PETA if you were a no-kill advocate or somebody who believed in no-kill. That's just, to me, that's just kind of a given. 
Um, but you have to be a true believer in order to work at PETA. You have to be a cog in the machine, and you have to be happy with that. You have to be willing to say to yourself, I don't know what's best. The leadership knows what's best. And you never question what you are told. If you question what you are told or think critically or voice your own opinion, you will be gone. And I'm not the only person, obviously, that's happened to, and I've, I've had other people tell me that too. The minute I voiced my opinion, the minute I questioned something, I was out of there because they cannot tolerate having anybody who will think freely or say, hey, but how about we do it this way instead? I mean, free thought is not, it's not only that it's not encouraged, it's that if you show any at all, you're gone. So I think for a lot of people, they train themselves to keep their mouth shut, maybe justifying it and saying that it's for the greater good of of PETA and what their objectives are, and maybe they really don't know best. Um, But you, you have to be a true believer in order to survive working there. You just have to. Especially now, given how much in the course of especially the last couple of years, how much about PETA has come up uh, in terms of the things right. that they do, uh, which didn't, you know, you know, were probably better guarded secrets when you were there. But, mm-hmm. you know, predictably, Heather, PETA says you're just a disgruntled ex-employee. And, and let me say that when I first heard them make that claim, uh, mm-hmm. You know, my first thought is is that a disgruntled employee doesn't wait as long as you did to come forward, doesn't, right. as you have in your writings, defend some of the good things that they do, and doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily admit to engaging in some of the unethical conduct. But there's uh, an even more fundamental reason why that claim doesn't hold up. Can you explain why, in terms of your own uh, job evaluations while there, which uh, Ingrid uh, Newkirk herself signed? Yeah. Um, so my first job evaluation was, I mean, they, they, they kind of evaluate several different things. And I was given on every single one, on every single point, either a good or an excellent um, for my evaluation. And my overall evaluation, I received an excellent rating. That was the word used. And I was given a raise. That evaluation was not only signed by my immediate supervisor, it was signed by Ingrid. So that's the kind of employee that I was. I was I was very good at my job. I only started being bad at my job when I stopped following orders. And following orders meant killing without question. Why is it safe right. to say that the things have not changed at PETA? I think there are a couple of different ways that you can look at that. And I think the most, for me, the most important thing is to just look at the facts. And you can see when you look at, at different things that have popped up in terms of when PETA has been caught, that what was true when I worked there in terms of killing animals was true in North Carolina when PETA killed animals and then dumped their bodies in in garbage bins. And it was true, we see, with what happened with Maya. There's a linear line of action here. And all you have to do is see that that, that there is no straying from that line. It's it's very consistent in their actions. And we're not even talking about philosophy. We're just talking about actions of people who go into vulnerable, low-income communities, gather up the animals by ingratiating themselves and getting people to trust them, ultimately kill those animals. It's, it's, the, it's the MO of the Community Animal Project. Now, barring strong evidence that that MO has changed, which I have not seen one drop of, it's impossible to believe 
factually that anything has changed. Let's talk a little bit about Maya since some of our listeners might not be aware of the case. It involves Mm -hmm. uh, a little dog named Maya who was healthy, beloved, and lived with her family. And like you said, uh, PETA representatives uh, got to know the family, got to know Maya, Mm -hmm. uh, talked to the family, uh, and uh, they came onto their property when the family was not at home. They took Maya off her porch and then killed her that very day. And uh, the uh, employees or the representatives of PETA were later arrested, but they they were never charged. And what I found uh, interesting was that the Commonwealth's attorney, the prosecutor, uh, uh, one of the reasons he said he didn't charge PETA because, uh, you know, they were PETA, and he he could not believe that PETA would steal people's animals to kill because they were PETA, and uh, right. you know he shouldn't have, have been surprised that, that they killed Maya, and uh, a lot of people who claim to be surprised that they killed Maya shouldn't have been, uh, and you weren't. In fact, uh, right. uh, why don't you explain why you weren't su- surprised and, and why Maya's case, because you, you write in your uh, essay on Black Boy that it was Maya's case and the subsequent introduction of the legislation in Virginia that was mm-hmm. introduced in response to Maya to put PETA out of the killing uh, business uh, was the event that motivated you to go public and tell the story of your history at PETA. Right. I, I think when I found out about Maya, you know, for, for a really long time, I just wanted to forget about everything that I did at PETA and um, just kind of move on. Um, shortly after I was fired, I became pregnant with our first child, and we were just focused on starting our family. And I just kind of put everything to the back of my mind and tried to forget. But with Maya, it brought she brought everything back. She brought Black Boy back. She brought all of these things that I had tried for so long to put out of my mind. She shook everything loose for me in addition to this legislation, because those two things together made me see that I couldn't keep quiet anymore. I mean, the the more I kept quiet, every day I kept quiet, I was still complicit in what they were doing. And I can't do that. I mean, you know, people have accused me of trying to gain notoriety, which is ridiculous because I'm really uncomfortable in the limelight. Um, saying that there's, I have something financial to gain out of this. And, you know, the only thing that I have to gain out of this is my own sense of atonement and some sort of legacy for Black Boy and for Maya. Um, so I wasn't surprised when I heard about what happened to Maya. I just was like, yeah, this is what they do. This is their MO. Um, but I knew that if I started speaking out, at least, even even if I didn't accomplish anything, even if nobody listened to me, I wasn't being quiet anymore. And maybe I could make some sort of difference in terms of uh, the law that was that was eventually passed, um, and maybe in the Maya case. Well, Heather, you you know you've done I, I think a, a, a beautiful job of describing how in your writings and in our discussions how your time 
uh, at PETA impacted uh, your life. Uh, I'm wondering how your writing and speaking about that time has impacted your life. Uh, in terms of coming forward, has it been cathartic or something else? And is there anything uh, you would say to other people who, who work at PETA or worked at PETA and who might be uh, equally unsettled or troubled by, by the things that they saw or the, even the things that they did, but they're uh, fearful of coming forward? It's intimidating to, to speak out about stuff like this. And I was worried not only about the reaction that I might get from PETA, but the reaction that I might get from advocates who had been speaking out about PETA's killing for so long. Um, because I wasn't sure how I would be received being a former employee who did the sort of things that PETA does. And I was just really touched by how warm people were, how welcoming everybody was, how they forgave me, encouraged me to forgive myself, didn't judge me, and just said, we're so happy that you're here with us now, helping us in this fight. Because there's a lot of people who are trying to raise awareness and who are trying to get the truth out there. And I, I have written several times asking former employees to come forward um, Acknowledging that, yeah, it's scary, it's intimidating, I get that, but I'm here. I've been at this for almost two years. I'm fine. You know, I mean, there has been some bullying. There has, there was a letter written by PETA attorneys to my husband's boss accusing him of um, things that he did not do, which was eventually shown um, that he didn't do any of those things. You know, they try those tactics, but it's all bluster. They don't have a leg to stand on because we're telling the truth. And any former employee who comes forward or a current employee who comes forward will be telling the truth as long as, you know, they're speaking the truth. We have that on our side. So I'm, I would really encourage people who know the truth to speak it because they can't, ultimately, they can't touch you. It's just their bullying tactics. It's what they do. And you have to remember that as long as you stay quiet, you're still participating in, in the evil that they're perpetuating. I mean, you're not actively doing it, but as long as you're quiet about it, you're enabling it to happen. So speak out, speak the truth, say what you, say what you know, because it really can make a difference. If I didn't think that, that we could make a difference, I wouldn't be fighting quite so hard. I've made peace with myself now. I feel like I've made some atonement and... I want to keep fighting because I feel like we can really create a change here. It, it reminds me of that, that, that quote. What is that quote? That the only thing necessary for triumph to evil is for good people to do for nothing. For evil to triumph is for, yeah, good people to do nothing. Absolutely. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and the attempts to try to take what happened as something that you're haunted by and make it right. So, um, uh, you and know, that's, I, that's really the only way that we can do that is, is by coming forward. So on that note, I was wondering, you know, what, what might you, given your experiences and how this has impacted your life, uh, do you have anything mm -hmm. that you want to say to people who might be considering going to work for PETA, maybe a cautionary tale of what it is <laughs> you, would, you would do differently if you could go back in time? I would say don't, don't do it. There are so many organizations who are doing truly genuine work who are um, working to advance animal rights or working to advance animal welfare. And I don't want to be painted as a monolithic PETA hater. I mean, they, they have made some incredible strides in the animal rights. Having said that, 
their tactics of deception, sensationalism, extremism are not only sometimes ineffective, but they're counterproductive. All the killing aside, and just the, the campaigns can paint everybody who's working towards animal rights, act, who are animal rights activists, as extremists. And I think it's really important for people to ask themselves, is that the kind of animal advocacy that I want to do? Do I want to say to myself, any publicity is good publicity? It doesn't matter how people look at us. Because in my opinion, it does matter. It, it matters how we're viewed by the public. And if you could work for an organization who really is truly doing a lot of good, who advocate for animals, who try to create change, but are doing so in a way that is honest and um, really has the best interest of animals at their center, then those are the kind of organizations that need you. Heather, I mean, if the goal here, so obviously there's two, two parts to that. One is, you go to work for PETA, you're going to do some very uh, unethical thing. You're going to be right. know, primarily, uh, at least with the Community Animal Project, killing animals and stealing animals to kill and lobbying mm-hmm. to have animals killed. But in terms of the other campaigns, I mean, if the right. goal is to win the hearts and minds of the people, you know, PETA seems to be uh, not doing that. They're, they're engaging no. in campaigns that alienate rather than excite people. Why do you suppose... Uh, I, I mean, that's not rocket science, to, right. given some of these campaigns. Why do you suppose there's uh, an embrace of sensationalism at the expense of success and actually helping the animals? In my opinion, it's because PETA kind of has the belief that any publicity is good publicity. And I think, just from my own experience, my own personal experience with Ingrid, nobody can tell her that she's not doing it the right way. It's stuck in her brain that her, her way is absolutely the right way. Everybody else's opinions, everybody else who says that, you know, there are different ways to do this, you know, their opinions be damned because this is just the way it's going to be done. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't even matter what people think of us as long as we're getting all of this out here. We can manipulate facts. We can deceive. We can use tactics that make people go, what are they doing? But at least they're talking about us. I, I think that's the philosophy behind it. You, now, you, now you, you mentioned Ingrid, and just in case we weren't clear from, from the outset, Ingrid Newkirk is the founder of PETA. She was your boss. She's the boss mm-hmm. uh, and basically sets the tone. Uh, is this approach that PETA takes, killing animals, <laughs> stealing animals, defending even abusive shelters and sensational campaigns that harm more than they help, I mean, is that approach going to outlive PETA or do you see change on the horizon once PETA's no once Newkirk is no longer with the organization? Um, I mean do you see as inevitable that PETA will eventually embrace no kill given that saving the lives of dogs and cats is sort of goes to the core of animal rights and it seems to me that what's keeping PETA from embracing it is Ingrid Newkirk herself and the people that she puts in the positions uh, uh, who also embrace that view. Right. I absolutely think that, think that things could change. Um, it would take a complete washing out of, of not only the leadership that is there right now, but the people who are being essentially groomed by that leadership. I don't think unless something drastic happens and everything just gets you know, shaken up that anything 
unfortunately will change because there's so many true believers there that I, I can't see that philosophy going away, that, that animals are better off dead or that sensationalism is the way to go. You, you would, I think, have to completely shake up every single person who's in a leadership position and then really put in people who are progressive and innovative and who really want to create change instead of being stuck in the mindset that lives at PETA now. All right. Well, we've talked about advice uh, to current staff and potential staff at PETA. Um, mm -hmm. I'm wondering, do you have any advice to give um, to the people that live in Norfolk, where PETA is located in Virginia, or, or residents in surrounding communities, uh, you know, where PETA is headquartered, to protect their animals from PETA? For example, we know uh, that PETA rounds up and kills outdoor cats, and obviously, as the Maya case demonstrated, they aren't against taking animals um, off private property and then killing those animals. Right. After the killing of, of Maya, we raised some funds to place a large ad in a local Norfolk paper warning residents about the ongoing threat to their animals posed mm -hmm. by PETA and urging people to not allow their animals to go outside unsupervised. Um, what is the, do you know the awareness in the community about the threat of PETA, or, and is there anything that you recommend to residents that live near PETA, to, to anything they should do to protect their animals? I'm actually surprised at the level of, where, of awareness. I mean, I don't know because I haven't, I haven't lived there for many years, but I, I, I'm in close communication with a lot of, of people who do, and it seems to me that I'm a little shocked that the level of awareness about what PETA actually does isn't higher within the Hampton Roads communities because it's, I mean, the information is out there and people are working very hard to get it out there. I don't know if people just aren't paying attention or if it's a sort of cognitive dissonance and they don't, they, they don't even want to think that it could be true. Um, so I, I think it definitely is not as high as it needs to be and a lot of progress can be made towards making it higher, and there are a lot of people who are working really hard to see that happen, but it, it, it's, a, it's an uphill battle because PETA is very powerful. They have very deep pockets, um, and they work hard to fight against the truth coming out. Um, so those people who are trying to do that, and they're warriors, and really, truly, and they're, they're working very hard against a very powerful organization. But I would absolutely say to the people who live in the Hampton Roads communities and even beyond that. Yeah, how far um, beyond that does PETA go? Can you give us a sense of that? Like how far does the well, emanate out from PETA headquarters to the com surrounding communities? I, I mean, it's primarily in Hampton Roads, but they do definitely go to other shelters um, or other other neighborhoods. I mean, Maya isn't from the Hampton Roads area or wasn't from the Hampton Roads area. So if there are opportunities to go further afield, then, you know, we did, and they do. Um, so I would say to people, don't, don't ever surrender your animal to PETA, because when they tell you that they are going to rehome your animal, it just won't happen. The animal will end up dead. And I think that's important. I mean, even, even if you are skeptical, even if you don't really believe that PETA is capable of this, don't take the chance. Don't put your animal into a potentially deadly situation. Don't let your animal wander where somebody could pick that animal up. Don't leave your animal unattended in the backyard. Um, you, you have to be, unfortunately, I think people in that area have to be 
extremely vigilant with their animals, even more so than you should be anyway. It's tragic, but but it's good advice. So, uh, Heather, do you have any uh, closing thoughts or anything you want, for example, people who defend PETA to know? I would say that I think they have to look at ultimately what I have to gain and what PETA has to gain. PETA has everything to lose if, if this truth really comes out, if they lose the Maya case, if people really start to believe the truth about them, that they're killing animals. Besides from personal atonement, I have nothing to gain from this. I, I feel like I have achieved the objective of starting a legacy for Black Boy. That's very important to me. But in terms of gaining things, there's nothing there besides just speaking the truth, which to me is a really important thing to do. So I know it's easy to buy into what they're selling. I did it myself. But if you truly respect animals, if you believe in animal rights, then research this. Think critically. Don't just automatically assume that they're honest because you think you know what PETA is about because there is so much under the surface that people are not paying attention to. All right. Well, thank you so very much, Heather, for your time and, and all your candor. It's very appreciated. And, uh, you know, let's keep fighting this fight. Can I, we- can I say one more thing? I want to kind of ask people who, especially young people, who want to start working for animal rights and for animal advocacy to try and look at different organizations because I know that, that getting a job at PETA, it can be mesmerizing. Um, but as I have encouraged people to do who are supporters of theirs, do the research first, think critically, because we need young, passionate, ethical people to be out there fighting for animals. But you have to know, if you work for PETA, you will be entering into dangerous territory, not only in the sense that you'll be working for an organization that kills animals and then lies about it, but also in the sense that you'll be working for an organization that expects you to be a true believer, meaning your voice, which is really important, will not be respected. You will be devalued as, as, as a person with an opinion and with a belief system. Animals need those voices. They need the voices of young people who are thinking innovative things, who are showing leadership, who want to put their compassion into action. So find organizations that are progressive, that strive for more, that know we are capable of more and that we have an obligation to act on that capability and and make sure that all the possibility that you have as a young person is realized. Thank you, Heather. Thank you, Heather, very much. Thank you. We want to end our podcast by reiterating Heather's plea to former or even current PETA employees who may have witnessed the killing of animals or who may have even participated in that killing as Heather did, to come forward and tell your story. To help us, help Heather, help others laboring to stop PETA's campaign of extermination once and for all, but most importantly, to help the animals. And for other animal lovers wondering what they can do to help bring PETA's atrocities to an end, we urge you to help us get the word out. Tell your friends, family, co-workers about what is really happening at PETA and urge them to stop funding the killing with their donations. And if you are an animal rights activist, it is vital that you work to disrupt the climate of acquiescence and indifference to the killing done by PETA that now pervades the animal rights movement itself. Ironically, the very movement that should be PETA's fiercest critic is instead its greatest enabler, 
granting PETA an unwarranted legitimacy and therefore the power, money, and influence it exploits to the detriment of animals. Refuse to attend events hosted by, in collaboration with, or sponsored by PETA. Summon the courage to speak the truth about PETA to your fellow animal rights activists whenever you can. Your allegiance is to the animals, not the pretenders and animal killers at PETA. And remember that while PETA may be powerful and revered now, no lie can live forever, and you don't want to be on the wrong side of history.